Welcome to Behind the Scenes with Brian, the podcast covering everything from engineering, mining, and mine waste management to whatever else may be on our minds. Pop in your headphones and don't forget to rate, subscribe, and share. And now, here is your host, Brian Ulrich. Hey everyone, this is Brian. This is Behind the Scenes with Brian, and today I'm joined by a PhD student from Waterloo, Nayan Rana. Nayan, how are you today? I'm good, Brian. Uh, thank you for the invitation to you know, attend your podcast. I'm a regular listener, so really appreciate the opportunity to talk about my ongoing research activities. Yeah, I'm, I'm uh, interested to get into it. It's going to be an interesting conversation. Likewise. Yeah. So did Waterloo get hit with the really harsh winter storms that ripped through uh, at least the American Northwest, Northeast, sorry, Northeast? Yeah. So there's an interesting story behind that. So Waterloo did get hit hard, uh, but I was away on, well, I wouldn't say vacation. I kept working. I was visiting my extended family in Bangladesh, my grandmother and uncles and aunties and all that. And so I get back on December 27th and I come up to the second floor of my townhouse and the window is blown open. And so my entire home was freezing and the heater was automatically turned on. So it was on for five, six days straight. And because hot air rises and cold air sinks, my bedrooms and the third floor were just burning. So that's the story of how i indirectly experienced the bomb cyclone so yeah yeah well yeah welcome home <laughs> yeah uh, yeah so so nyan tell us a li- little bit about yourself your background and your education let's say yeah so i am a phd candidate uh, in the final four months of my program here at the university of waterloo in Ontario, Canada. I wasn't always in the tailings field. Um, Well, my thesis is right now focused on engineering geology and remote sensing, i.e. GIS and NSAR for tailings dams mainly. Then there's also a component for water retention dams, but mainly because of the time we're living in, it's mainly focused on tailings dams. It's interesting because I haven't been in this field ever before my PhD. My bachelor's, I came to this country Um, My high school was in United Arab Emirates, Dubai. And uh, it's interesting because there is no earth science course over there for the elementary level or high school level. Interesting. And and that's exactly why I wanted to study that when I was offered the opportunity to study at Waterloo. (laughs) And uh, I was interested in issues like global warming, climate change, and surprisingly even dam failures. So... I got into Waterloo and I studied hydrogeology. So that was my undergraduate. That was, I did a co-op at WSP for 20 months. That went well. And then uh, in my master's, I did a one-year condensed master's program to study catastrophic landslides in the high mountain glacierized environments of Northwest North America. That went well. And then Brumadinho happened. Yeah. uh, January 25th, 2019, and what happened there immediately thereafter is this, there was this consortium formed of three universities and five companies. The three universities are UBC, 
yeah. uh, University of British Columbia, University of Waterloo, and Queen's University in Kingston. Mm-hmm. And five companies, including KCB, Kloon Crippen, uh, BGC Engineering, Suncor, Imperial, and Golder Associates, now WSB Golder. So, and this is funded, jointly funded by the Industrial Partners and the National uh, Government of Canada. And essentially, it was to advance the state of tailings dam breach analysis in the industry. That was the main, main goal. And Waterloo's component of this was to, foren- to undertake forensic case history examinations, develop new geodatabases, use remote sensing methods to understand more about how these failures happen uh, and what are, what are the consequences, map them out, develop new empirical and statistical relationships. And that's where I came in. And just as an FYI, UBC does the numerical modeling. The data is provided by myself. And Queens uh, undertakes flume experiments. They build, they literally build dams and allow them to fail. So, yeah. Wow. So, so let me ask you, um, what, just, just because they didn't have earth science courses uh, where you were growing up, that, I mean, that, that's a big change for you to go from uh, having no exposure to immersing yourself in it. It, it is, it, it was definitely. And in fact, my first couple semesters did not go well because it, it, it was, of course, the cultural readjustment as well as the intellectual adjustment. Um, it, it, having to learn about, you know, uh, stuff like, you know, the Permian Triassic era, uh, what happened in each of those geological eons and eras and stuff like that. Right. This is something that I never had to learn. And then progressing to geology, like geology is a term I don't think I ever even uttered in growing up. So um, it, it was it was challenging, but then over time, it is my passion what drove me to do well from my second year onwards. And the thing, the interesting thing is that I grew up learning as much as I could about earth science from Wikipedia, just Wikipedia. I just kept Googling, <laughs> Googling Wikipedia and stuff like yeah. that. And it was all informal education. And then when I felt like I had culturally adjusted to Canada, then my passion naturally evolved. It came to fruition and I was able to learn with ease and grow with ease over here. Okay, that's, that's pretty cool. And uh, tailings obviously is a very useful field to be in. It has been for a long time, but has come much more to the forefront because of some of the horrible failures that we've had, the, especially the two in Brazil. So the timing of your your work and your research that we'll talk about in just a couple of seconds, it's, you know, it's um, going to be of uh, great value to the industry, I, I think. That's my hope. That's my ultimate hope. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, disasters, as tragic as they may be, they're also opportunities for us as a community and as an industry to grow. Bridges actually went through this, like the bridge industry went through this when yes. they were initially be, being built. Yeah, yeah. And I think uh, bridges tend to fail on something like a 30-year return period. Yeah, which... I, I don't know the modern statistics of that, but I know it was far more frequent when in the eight, late 1800s. 
uh, yeah. I remember. Yeah. Yeah, I think things are a little bit standardized, but I read a book recently that specifically talked about bridge failures, and it was a, a whole problem of scaling things up. And the author put it really pretty simply. He was saying, you know, if you're trying to scale up something like a chicken to the size of a T-Rex, you can't just magnify the bone. You have to make it thicker. And that's something that bridge builders missed out on. They thought they could just make them larger without it making them stiffer, thicker, or, or something like that. So I thought that was pretty interesting insight. Is that the scaling up is often an issue. That's extremely insightful. You have to forward the name of that book to me. But yeah, okay. Yeah. So so let's talk a little bit about your research. Oh, first, your PhD candidate now does that mean you've submitted your dissertation no candidate means that i passed that three and a half hour marathon of a candidacy exam a year ago and it uh, just means i'm all set to defend my thesis which will be held in april mid-april okay. and my thesis will be submitted first uh, of march god willing and um, until then, it's just preparing my final and preparing and submitting my final journal article and uh, finalizing my thesis. So, yeah. Okay, that's that's very cool. That's very cool. So you've got a number of articles uh, on specifically on tailings and um, flow failures and and that sort of thing. What 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 is one of the papers that you're particularly fond of or proud of? Well. <sighs> I would say both of my first author journal articles, I feel are extremely timely. And the word I would use is disruptive. And the reason I use yep. that term is because it, it, it's, a, it's a new standard by which we should gather and use data on tailings dam failures. And it applies to both my papers. So the first journal article was on developing a geo-validated, and I'll explain this term later on, later on a geo-validated database of catastrophic mass flows resulting from tailings dam failures. So not just the tailings dam breaches, but the downstream inundation of these failures. And so what I did, I developed an expertise in using satellite imagery. And so I went back to the 1960s, and interestingly, I used U.S. spy satellites to okay, yeah. map these like 37 different tailings dam breaches and their downstream consequences worldwide. And I mapped the, the in downstream inundation area and uh, run out distances. And that's a whole new data set now that practitioners can use when, when conducting tailings dam breach analysis or TDBAs. So, and all, furthermore, the database is like supplemented by the images of these case histories, which in serve as you know experimental models. For example, you want to study a case that failed by foundation failure. Here are your case studies. You want to study a case that failed via erosional overtopping or internal erosion. Here are your case studies. Liquefaction, shear failure, so forth. So it's a benchmark database. So that's the first one. And the second one uh, was disruptive because previously we had thought that you know the uh, tailings dam failures, like the failure rate of tailings facilities was orders of magnitude larger than water retention dams. But turns out counterintuitively, that's not true. 
it's actually on a similar level. It's like closer to 2%, whereas water retention dams closer to 1%. So it's like maybe twice. But the uncertainty resulted from people underestimating the number of tailings facilities worldwide. Okay, yeah, yeah, I can imagine that. And so that's the key takeaway from the second paper, that we need to consider how many tailings facilities are actually out there. But the failure rate is not necessarily an indicator of the risk of an industry. It, it can't be the only metric. Right. It's just a number. Because ultimately, tailings, each tailings dam failure matters. So yeah. that's the point we try to drive home in the second paper. Yeah, okay, okay. And then you had a paper about benchmarking of four numer numerical runout models. What was that one about? Oh, that study was led by UBC PhD student who you actually interviewed, Nigar Kahramani, um, oh. I believe uh, last year. Yeah. And um, she uh, basically led this investigation. Uh, they, they use these landslide-based numerical models, runout models, Dan 3D, uh, Dan W and a couple others, I believe. So they use these four numerical runout models to simulate a channelized tailings flow, Stava, mm. yeah. 85, yeah. and then the an unconfined tailings flow from Mary's, like they use Mary Spruit as the example. Mm -hmm. And they saw what are the pros and cons of each numerical model? Can they be used? What are, what are the practical considerations for doing a successful simulation? And so I would say that's a benchmark paper and so on. So yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. To to me the the art of running a dam breach analysis is one of the most important things we have because it tells us or it helps us to understand where things downstream might be uh, in jeopardy should a possible you know a, a possible dam break happen. You know who do you warn? Uh, how long do you have to warn these people? But to me, it's still, there's a lot of art to it, uh, not just in developing the parameters, but there's there's a lot of um, leeway in how different people run dam break analyses. And I actually saw one that was horribly conducted and the, the uh, speed at which the tailings was flowing from this dam was about half of the speed that a human could walk. And so it, it takes, yeah, it's like a glacier. So it, it, it takes judgment and experience and some, some, artist, some artistic um, approaches along with um, the, the science and the databases. Yeah, a couple interesting comments on that. You know, the fastest tailing slow that have been that has been recorded is, I, I believe Brumadinho has that record as well as uh, Stava, both achieved thirty meters a second. So that's one hundred and eight kilometers an hour or miles. I have to Google that. Uh, yeah, close yeah. enough. <laughs> yeah, close enough. But uh, that's the fastest. And the second thing, which you might be interested to know, is the the biggest question that was pitched to me at the start of my PhD was that the biggest uncertainty in conducting a TDBA is how much volume is going to be released from the facility. Yeah, yeah. You if, you have a, if you have a tailings facility that's, you know, upstream race, let's say Brumadinho, classic, you have an upstream race facility, 
over a ground slope that that is inclined eight to 12 degrees. So it's all piled up against that one single dam. How much, uh, 75% of the facility flowed, but then you have a ring dike facilities situated on near flat terrain that failed by sheer failure. It's not going to be 75% likely. It's going to be like 25, maybe, maybe 15 even. So how do you manage that uncertainty? And so that was one of the, that remains, to be honest, one of the key questions of how to manage that uncertainty in your results. And my recommendation has always been to incorporate that uncertainty in your output. I don't, personally, I don't agree with undertaking a singular deterministic analysis. You have to show a realistic scenario or, or a high maximum worst case scenario, something like that, that could show the possible range of outcomes. In doing so, you capture all the uncertainty within your results. Yeah, that the same author I was telling you about that did the bridge failures, he was saying that all predictions really should be represented with a probability distribution function. There's nothing, nothing you predict has a certainty. So you, you need to put some probability to it that says, well, yeah, I mean, I, I can't imagine saying this guy's house is not in a flow path because it's 20 meters off of the the flood line. You know, you, you need to put some probabilities on that to help in your guidance. Yeah, and there are key ethical questions that have come into play. So if, you know, if you take my suggestion and you do, let's say, one maximum worst case scenario and one let's say 50, 30% scenario. So 30% versus 75%, okay. Then what if a house falls within the worst case, but doesn't fall in the 30% case? What are you gonna do then? So, but I don't think that that ethical question is even addressed adequately at this point. I'm not sure. Uh, I'm just getting into consulting for it, to be honest. So I I don't wanna make that comment, but, that's why we have to take that approach. We have to be able to incorporate these uncertainties in our methodologies. Yeah, yeah. To, to, to me, I mean, the Ward Wilson at the U of A, and he's not the guy that invented it, but he says all models are wrong, but some models are useful. And you would hope that you come up with a useful model. The, the guy that had the, you know, the tailings moving at a glacial speed, that was not useful um and and you know we're, we're just trying to get some guidance with it you know should we maybe encourage this guy with our assistance to relocate his house and his farm and his livestock over to this other valley and then you know maybe they don't want to go because they're they trade crops with a local farmer that's that's just across the way you know it's it's not always easy to convince people uh to relocate there are local scale cultural and socioeconomic factors that come into play when you are building a tsf yeah yeah such areas well Nayan, what what are your hopes with the research that you've done? I, I think we haven't really talked about your two most recent papers, but what what would they mean to current and future practitioners of dam break analyses? Well, when it comes to the first paper, 
um, uh, which was developing this new uh, database. And so th this database is cons uh, consisting of you know, 63 cases dating back to the 1920s and 37 of them are geo-validated. Like you have satellite images confirming the inundation extents of these uh, breaches. So using that, we developed a new empirical model with probabilistic upper and lower bounds in our empirical relationship and st statistical relationship. So basically it relates volume to the downstream runout distance. It relates volume to the downstream inundation area. And there's also another new variable that we introduced. It's called travel path angle that incorporates uh, the, down, the topographic slope angle of the runout path. So sort of like a 3D variable that's incorporated into a 2D graph. So um, we introduced these new variables, uh, these new relationships that should provide a screening tool for someone to you know, pick a site. Let's say a consultant picks a site and they say, Huh. So this is the range of possible outcomes, possible runout distances, possible inundation areas given my site. One key thing to mention here is that it's not just any kind of runout distance, like even down, down a river. So we developed a classification framework where, uh, and this work was initially led by UBC's, uh, my colleague, it, when a tailings flow is intercepted by a water body, so that's where this yeah. zone one ends and then zone two commences thereafter. We did not address zone two. That's primarily geochemical yeah. and sedimentological. Yeah. yeah. So that's one. That's for the first paper. So you have all these new relationships that are validated. So, and it also talks a lot about the uncertainties that have to be considered. And second, for the second paper, um, it's really important to mention that this second paper has led to an initiative led by ICOLD now and I'm a part of that initiative, it's to develop a global registry of tailing stamps. So we have, as part of my work, I have geolocated 10,400 uh, worldwide now. Cool. And, that, and that excludes East Asia, Central Asia, excluding China. China has given us half that data. Mm -hmm. So excluding Central Asia, like the Kazakhstan, Tajikistan, et cetera, then you, it's excluding much of continental Africa and much of mainland Europe. And even then, even so, we have counted, not just counted, but located 10,400 facilities, not dams, facilities. And on average, a facility has 1.8 dams. So that's 18,000 tailing dams right there. You, you know, I think that's about twice the number that people are currently thinking exist. And that, yeah. like you say, that doesn't even include huge um, areas of land. That's exactly the point, the key takeaway of the second paper, and one of the key takeaways. And because it, it, there's this buzzword you may have heard, the critical minerals initiative. You know, yeah. we're trying to remine existing mines. We're trying to locate where the critical minerals are for each country. Yeah. And there's also the risk aspect of each tailing storage facility you you know about Yegas Fontaine recently it wasn't even registered we have the South African database but it, it Yegas Fontaine wasn't registered there so we have to be able to know where all the facilities are and that relates to the goals of the Church of England of both the Church of England and ICOLD 
there's these multi-staged uh, goals. First stage is to locate where the facilities are. Second is to develop a global monitoring system, primarily based on INSAR, remote sensing, to be able to monitor the highest risk areas, highest priority areas. And then third, allocate the funds to fund these initiatives. Yeah, yeah, that's amazing. You so must have been... Yeah. You, you must have been drinking a lot of coffee to be able to enter all of those into the database. Uh, I'm more of a tea kind of guy, but yeah, basically. <laughs> yeah. 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 So, you know, then there's also another key finding from the second paper, is it, which is that as the volume of tailings worldwide, the production volume of tailings worldwide has accelerated so has the average volume of tailings released by failure. Mm. Okay. Mm. And a lot of this, statistically speaking, a lot of this is down to the recent anomalously large failures. Um, Brumadinho was what, uh, 9.7 million cubic meters. Uh, there was uh, Fundao Samarco, 41 million cubic meters. Yeah. Mount Polly yeah. was 25 million. Yegas Fonten, I suspect, is very large as well. So, mm. Is this just coincidence or is it just the fact that tailings facilities are actually get, have actually gotten much, much larger over time? So you're producing more, you're likely building more, but you're also storing more. Yeah. And so, yeah. yeah I'm, not, I'm not sure if there's a cause and effect, but it certainly is related to each other that we're making more tailings. So more tailings are going to be failing unless we're, incredibly careful and diligent in what we do. You know what's interesting is that the, the annual frequency of tailings dam failures has remained constant since, the 19, since 1966, four yeah. to seven, four to seven failures a year. But the magnitude, i.e. the size and environmental impact of these failures has risen over time. Mm. So yeah. per failure, yeah. the impact is larger. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. What, what, what other insights has, have, has your research led to? Well, um, right now, I am the final paper that I'm working on right now, it's an extremely large comprehensive study that uses satellite INSAR mm -hmm. to, to undertake a ground truth assessment at this anonymous test site somewhere in Canada. Uh, basically, it's an accuracy test to see is insar as accurate as a monitoring prism so, so forth that's the first phase of the paper and the second phase of the paper is the issue is we've only used insar to study two tailing stamp failures to date cadia and phasia mm. so we need to expand this case history archive in order to understand the capabilities and limitations of insar if that's really good because almost everybody's using insar now yeah, especially if you like, if the Church of England is talking about implementing INSAR as a global remote sensing tool to monitor sites, uh, tailings facility sites, there are many practical considerations. What type of satellite do you want to use? What's the size of the facility? What type of processing software do you want to use? And can it monitor, which we found in our paper, this is sort of a spoiler, but um, like some software can't actually detect accelerated precursor accelerations. So you can't really detect that because it crosses a threshold. So 
That's why we are studying eight different tailings dam failure cases in our paper, in a single paper, to be able to show to the reader um, what are the pros and cons of each kinds of software, what kinds of results can, and what are the environmental conditions that influence the quality of the output. For example, in vegetated terrain, it's very difficult to produce a high quality insert result, except if you use a very good insert company. Yeah, so there are practical cost-benefit considerations that come into play. Interesting, interesting. You know, I, th I think we could probably talk for an hour, but uh, just uh, out of courtesy to you and your time, because I, I know you're you're busy with everything and it's pretty impressive that you've written all these papers and that you're still writing, even though you're trying to graduate. And, and you've also joined KCB recently, right? Yeah, it's it's been my first week. It's uh, all orientation stuff. So, but uh, colleagues are great. Company culture is great. Uh, I'm very pleased to have made this decision. It's yeah, that's, that's a great. yeah, it's a fun commute as well. So, yeah. <laughs> well, and hopefully you uh, enjoy working in tailings and you make it a lifelong career. I, one of the things we definitely need is more people coming into uh, the tailings uh, engineering world yeah i keep being told that in conferences we need more young people we need more young people um because I, 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 I would even leave out the young we just need more people <laughs> yeah that's true that's true yeah. and uh yeah i hope to dedicate my career to this field um it's it's a it's a very important time to be present in this field so yeah yeah, yeah that's great that's great Stan, I really appreciate your time with us today and hope uh, can catch up with you in the future. And I hope you can get to some of the tailings conferences and present some of your findings at those conferences. Absolutely. Uh, thank you for having me. Thank you for the opportunity. And uh, yeah. I hope this is, um, we get to talk later on as well. So, yeah. yeah, perfect. I, I appreciate your time and uh, I'll let you get back to your normal day now. Well, that's it. I'm Brian, and this is Behind the Scenes with Brian. Until next time, keep on rockin'.